enjoy a nation that has had grace showered upon her. A nation who has enjoyed the presence and the gifts of God in abundant measure. A nation who decided some years back that they no longer trusted in the God who founded her. That they were smart, that we were smart enough and that we were educated enough to, to go it alone. To step out on the bare strength of human ingenuity and leave behind those great, those great founding principles that were ours. That man's liberty is that which comes from knowing the gospel. That the truth of God is that which sets men's, men's hearts free. That it is the truth of God that has helped us overcome slavery and oppression. It is the truth of God that has driven missionaries to the four corners of the globe. It is the truth of God that has allowed us to build an economy based on truth and honesty and, and, and contracts that meant something. And once that truth was removed, once the nation stopped fearing God, once the nation sought to eliminate Him, from the, 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 the republic that he founded, then, then our national woes became so glaring, so monumental, so insoluble that we wonder, will our country ever be what she once was, ever again? Father, we're not here to celebrate a government. We're not here to celebrate a political party or even the men who should spill their blood for human freedom. We're here to celebrate the goodness of God towards us. We understand, O oh God, it was not Benjamin Franklin, nor Thomas Jefferson, nor George Washington, nor Abraham Lincoln that gave us what we enjoy. It is You. It is You, O oh God, who placed in the breasts of men and women the longing for religious freedom and for truth and orthodoxy. And we as a nation have enjoyed it for decades. And now, oh God, it seems more and more that we've lost it. And I pray, oh God, that you will forgive us. Might the church lead the way in asking you to forgive us and heal our land. It is a land that was once so convinced of your goodness. And now, it is a land that has forgotten your name. Oh God, might we as a people give voice to that which is dear to us. That it is only founded upon righteousness and righteous principles that a nation will ever succeed. Might we, oh God, be the vanguard leading this country back to a place where there was reverence and fear of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Our Father, might your people worship you in such a way today that it won't be the nation that stirs their hearts and patriotism that is altogether lovely but it might be a God who has set us free in Christ to enjoy the bounty of His blessing otherwise.
Accept our praise. Accept our gifts. They are designed so that the kingdom of God might be built in our midst. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Them, if you will, to the way in the back of the New Testament, to the book of 1 Peter. He's got two letters, but this is his first one. And I want to read you um, out of the... I don't need it anyway. I want to read you uh, uh, three verses out of the fifth chapter of his first letter. So you follow as I read, beginning at 1 Peter chapter 5 at verse 5. Here we go. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I have a hunch that Abraham Lincoln had read this text. And with an eye towards our celebrations on Wednesday, I'd like to read you something, just a portion of a speech that was once given by the 16th President of the United States, which I think proves that Abraham Lincoln had read this text that I just read you this morning. It's rather lengthy, but it is well worth listening to. Trust me. Listen to a portion of a speech by the 16th President of the United States of America, Abraham Lincoln. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations, has by a resolution requested the President to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And, whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humbled sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as we know that by His divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our own hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with an unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient 
to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now, therefore, I do by this my proclamation designate and set apart Thursday, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. Let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. Is that not stirring rhetoric, ladies and gentlemen? Does that not make you proud to be an American? Oh, it does me. When I, when I sing things about God shedding His grace on her and read things like this, it makes me proud to be an American, ladies and gentlemen. But, what's the chances, you think, of hearing a 21st century president ever say something like that? Um, did you notice at the very beginning that, it, that this proclamation came at the request of the Senate? Did you hear that? What do you think the chances are of our Senate filled with senators from Massachusetts? What do you think the chances are of our Senate ever pleading with the President of the United States to set aside a day like this. What do you think would happen on the floor of the United States Senate today if something like that were even read? Do you think there'd have to be a time of apology to their enlightened constituency? Do you think there would be some degree of embarrassment that... that Things like this would, would, be, uh, would be even said by a president. Do you think that maybe that over in the corners of the Senate chamber, that one of the hundred senators would be snickering over such foolishness as that? Gang, did, did you pick up... President Lincoln's perspective on the Civil War. Did you get it? Let me, let me just read you just a clause. He viewed the Civil War as a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins. How many presidents do you know who view our national woes of today as God's punishment for our national Sins and presumptuous sins. Gang, as, as I read it, 
Did you pick up what the, what the heart of the matter was? Did you pick up what the, what the crux, and I hate to use this crude term, the guts of what Lincoln was pleading for? Did you, did you, did you get it? Did you notice what it was that Lincoln was asking the nation to do? It should be pretty obvious because the day that was set aside had a name to it. <laughs> it was called a National Day for Prayer and Humiliation. I am um, suggesting that what Lincoln was calling the nation to is a prayer born of national humility. And I, I think the context of what he said supports that. And I, and I say to you that that's probably the least likely of all of that to happen. That is, in a culture that pretty much hates the whole idea of humility. Our culture views humility as a, is, is a less than cool kind of churchy topic that only serves to decrease people's already dangerously low sense of self-esteem. Listen to this quote I found. In this put-down world of ours, where we are browbeaten by bully bosses and thoughtless spouses, don't talk about humility, talk about grace. We've had enough of gloomy piety, doormat theology, and self-flagellation. Give us hope, not humility. I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that that is so wrong-headed. Because first and foremost, ladies and gentlemen, surely you understand, I hope you understand, that the opposite of humility is not hope and grace. That hope and grace are not certainly contradictory to humility. I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the very foundation of hope and grace is humility. You and I uh, sit back and deplore a government that has become what she has become and decry the, uh, the, the idea that our government has lost any sense of fear and reverence for God, a government that would never dream of repeating such a scene as I just wrote to you that occurred on April the 30th, 1863. And, you know, maybe as you think about the comparisons between these two governments of of 140 years ago, 138 years ago, and compare them with the government that we, that we now have in place, maybe that should sadden us. Maybe it should overwhelm us. Maybe it should really burn us. But ladies and gentlemen, tell me this. When is the last time that you heard the Church of Jesus Christ unite her voice around the plea to humble ourselves. I want you to know, it, at least is my opinion, that it's not the government's job to call this nation to humility. It is ours. Beginning with us. I think the burden ought to be, ladies and gentlemen, not that the government doesn't call us to humility but that the church doesn't. That's the failing. And we have a government in place today that we deserve. Far from being some kind of optional feature in one's personality, 
I want to suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that humility is an essential quality for excellence of soul. From God's perspective, humility is simply being obedient to the Word. Here's one place, but it is by no means the only place. It is a virtue that is received and is nurtured by grace. It involves submitting our minds and, our, and, our, and the entirety of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Humility is that moment-by-moment moment act of the will decision to center my life upon Christ and not self. And I suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the last thing that you need to hear, the very last thing that you need to hear from the pulpits of this land and from this pulpit is that you ought to believe in yourself. Because many of us have done that. And we bear the scars to prove it, don't we? We can all testify <laughs> about the great experiences that we uh, enjoyed when we trusted in the arm of the flesh. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was a certain route to humiliation. Not humility. Those are, those are different, you know, ladies and gentlemen. I've been humiliated more than once. I'm afraid it's not over. But being humiliated doesn't necessarily mean that I'm humble. I'm suggesting that trusting in self is the route to humiliation. And the Scriptures aren't calling us to humiliation. The Scriptures are calling us to this beautiful treasure and this beautiful virtue of humility. And you know, I think every one of us agree. Because we've, we've met people, maybe not at Gracie Van, maybe not in the pastoral staff of Gracie Van, but we've met humble people. And they're beautiful, aren't they? Aren't they? Don't you love to be around them? But there's nothing that can so blow up a small group than somebody who's high-minded. There's nothing so ugly to be around than, than someone who's full of themselves. And yet there's nothing more beautiful to be around than someone who is genuinely, biblically, virtuously humble. Humility is a friend of the soul, which I suggest to you is the way to avoid humiliation. But they won't tell you that, ladies and gentlemen, in the self-help books that you're reading and the pop psychology that you're listening to. One of my heroes is, um, is G.K. Chesterton, which you know by now. But um, he was prone to say, we, we, suffer from, we suffer today from humility in the wrong place. Listen to what he said in, in Orthodoxy. He said, A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not to assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not doubt the divine reason or the Word of God. We suffer today, says Chesterton, 
from humility in the wrong place. We doubt this and trust this. When it ought to be reversed. Doubt this and trust that. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I suggest to you that the government's failure is one thing, and it does grieve us. But for heaven's sake, the real failure, the real tragedy, is behind this pulpit and in those chairs. You know, all of you have read that book. Well, not all of you, but many of you have read that book by Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Effective, whatever it is of a successful living or effective families or successful, whatever it is. Um, but anyway, he's got this illustration in um, one of his books that's just really a dynamite illustration. And, and here's what he does. He, um, he's speaking to the audience. He sets on a table a large glass jar. And he puts several rocks, large rocks, in the glass jar. And then he looks at his audience. He says, is it full? And they say, yeah, it's full. And so then he takes out a bag of pebbles and he pours it into the glass jar. And then he turns to his audience once again and he says, now is it full? They say, oh yeah, well, now it's full. And then he pulls out a sack full of sand and he pours the sand into the jar. And he looks at his audience once more and says, okay, is it full now? And they say, yeah, it's full now. And then he takes out a pitcher of water. And he pours three or four pints of water into the glass jar. And he says, okay, is it full now? And they say, well, yeah, it's really full now. And he looks at his audience and he says, what is the lesson that I'm trying to teach here? And he says, invariably, they immediately respond by saying, well, when it all seems full, you can always get a little bit more in. You know, if there's... If your schedule is full of soccer and softball, you can always fit in piano. And he said, that's not the lesson at all. The lesson is, if you don't get the big rocks in in the first place, you'll never get them in. Gang, what are the big rocks in your life? Huh? What are the things of primary and first importance to you? I'm pleading with you. One of them has to be. God offered humility. I'm not saying it's the only rock. I'll say this. It's the rock that ought to go in first. Because the rest of the rocks you're going to put in there are going to be built on it. I don't know of anything that should come in front of it. When you're putting your life together, ladies and gentlemen, one thing that has got to be a big rock has got to be God-offered humility. I want to spend the rest of the time that I have with you, and it's not long, telling you why. Telling you why that the big rocks, and there's not many of them, have got to include humility. I want to give you three reasons. 
first of all, ladies and gentlemen, it's obvious from what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5 that Peter thought that humility was imperative. His, his charges in verse, uh, verse 5 uh, twice, and then, of course, in verse 6, actually, it's in verse 6, where the imperative comes, the Greek verb, in the imperative. He is pleading with us not to give it a thought or weigh it up as some kind of option. He's saying to us, by way of command, humble yourself. He, he realizes that humility is not something that comes to us naturally. What comes to us naturally is self-trust. And so he issues under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit a command. Humble yourselves. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. But there's something else about what he says here, about this text, that struck me as I studied it this week. Do you notice what he places right next to his imperative? A plea to cast all of your care upon him. You know, I, 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 trying to get into the mind of an apostle is pretty hard. But at least we can say this much. In the mind of Peter, those two things were related. That is, the alleviation of our care... And humility. I, I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, that you and I get stuck with a whole lot of care because we bought into self help books and have heretofore missed out on humility. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, God responds to humility. From His people, He responds. If you think that I made that up, then let me quote a verse of Scripture for you. It's found in that glorious passage in Luke chapter 1, the Magnificat, where Mary is singing excitedly about being the mother of God. And she states in that song that we call the Magnificat, she states in verse 53, Thou hast sent away the rich empty-handed, but thou hast filled the humble with good things. Actually, thou hast filled the hungry with good things. God says, you come with your fist filled, and I send you away with nothing. You come hungry, and I fill you with good things. Ladies and gentlemen, I think that some of the care that you are burdened with at this very moment is because you have failed to obey. And there's no rock in your glass called humility. I come to you, ladies and gentlemen, with a pastoral concern. I'm not here trying to flagellate. I'm saying, why do we carry it around when we can humble ourselves and cast it upon Him who cares for us? There's a second reason why one of the rocks in your glass has got to be 
humility. I told this story before. I love to tell it, uh, but because to me it's such a great illustration. I was an Indiana Jones fan and still am. Um, I, Raiders of the Lost Ark, in my opinion, is right up there with Gone with the Wind. Um, a genuine classic. Um, but all those things we saw, um, you know, shoot him up, rough guy, Indiana Jones. But one of them, the, um, the Last Crusade, when he's looking for this thing, and you know, right at the end of the movie, he, he, um, he gets to this big cavern, and he's standing on a shelf of rock, and the cave is across this, this canyon of unmeasurable depth. And he figures out to get over there, he's got to take a step of faith. You remember that? And he takes a step of faith in this, this concrete uh, paved way uh, connects between him and where he needs to go. And, uh, and so he walks over there and he gets in and there's this guy, this real old guy with his long beard has been waiting for him for centuries. And he's finally said, oh, they finally come to get the thing, the goblet from which Jesus drank at the Last Supper. And so the old guy points Indiana Jones to this shelf on which sits numerous goblets some of them silver and some of them gold and some of them bejeweled and and you know there's several of them sitting there and 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 indiana i don't know what he says out loud but it says in his mind he says now which one which one would the carpenter have chosen a reference of course to our savior and you know what ladies and gentlemen i know which one the carpenter would have chosen and so did indiana he throws away the silver one and throws away the gold one and throws away the jewel one and he, he takes the one that's most humble, most mean, made out of dirt and with thumbprints all over it. And that's the one. I know that's so, ladies and gentlemen. I know it's so. And I'll tell you why I know it. Because there's one place in the Bible, one time, one time and one time only, when Jesus says, you want to know who I am? You want to know what I'm like? Here it is. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me because I, I'm what? Powerful and almighty because I'm strong and omnipotent because I'm sovereign. No. Take my yoke and learn of me for I am meek. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know that that text is absolutely unique to the New Testament. There is not another place where Jesus describes Himself. And when the Son of God gets ready to describe Himself, do you know what words He used? I'm meek and lowly of heart. And then He says, you can find rest for your soul. Same thing Peter did. Rest for my soul, knowing the meek one, knowing the humble one. Ladies and gentlemen, if you want to know something about the internal workings and the character and the person of Jesus Christ, there's your text. And if I want to be like Him, I better get a rock in my jar, a big one, underneath all the rest of them, that says, Humility is valued by me. One other thing, I'm finished. Here's the next reason why, ladies and gentlemen, that rock's got to go in that jar. Because we're trying to reach them. 
And what do you think appeals to them? Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know of many things that is more comely to the non-Christian world than humble believers. But I wouldn't blame them for spitting us out who are high-minded and self-trusting. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, a part of building an irresistible testimony is that we know the value and the beauty of God-authored humility. Our Father, um, remind us from Your Word that what the world telling us is, is going to be indeed contradictory to what You're telling us. The government is not going to ask us anymore to humble ourselves. The tragedy is, O oh God, that we have failed to ask Your people to do so. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us preachers who are so desirous of people's applause and approval and big crowds that we shrink from doing that which is necessary and tell people how to manage their stress and how to build a big portfolio. Oh God, thank you for the models that we've had in the past in our nation. But those models are gone. Might we provide the models for future generations? Might the church of Jesus Christ not buckle under the weight of our self-help books where therapy replaces obedience to your word? Oh God, make us a people who find our greatest marching orders right from the divine reason, your word itself. Father, if people have come here today and have not yet met the Savior who is indeed altogether lovely in our eyes, might they see Him today. Might they glory in His beauty and His work at Calvary for them. Might today be the day of salvation for someone who has carried around a load of self-worth way too long and now can lay it at the feet of Jesus Christ and find real worth. Worth in knowing that we are the objects of the love of God proved at Calvary's cross. Now, Father, we commit ourselves to that. And I pray, O oh God, that each person in this room would spend some time figuring out how we can best obey as we all try to become more like Jesus Christ and portray and live out testimonies that will be irresistible to a non-Christian audience. We ask all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.